I want to get into chapter 8 in our study of 1 Samuel. We got into that a little bit last week, but I want to do a little bit of review. Um, just, I'm not going to read all this, but just to remind you of a couple of things. The first three verses of chapter 8, we see Samuel do something which, at least up to that point, was unprecedented. He makes his sons judges in Israel, which... Up to this point, judges were not hereditary positions, but he makes them. But we read in verse 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So you have character issue with his sons. Therefore, verse 4, Therefore, then all the elders gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah. Remember, Ramah is his hometown there in the west side of the Ephraim land grant and said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, therefore, therefore, appoint for us a king to judge us in this very crucial phrase, like all the nations. So, and I'm going to remind you of how significant this is. The they're asking for the theocracy to change because before this request, it, and I wrote this on the board a number of weeks ago, it was God, the Levitical priests, and the people. Now the change in the theocracy is God, the king, the Levitical priests, and the people. But the, the key for where we are in our study and for, for Scripture is that phrase, like all the nations. And I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to elaborate on it anymore. They are not like all the nations. They have a covenant relationship with the living God. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And we, I know we've talked about that before. So that, that is distinctive. They're not like the other nations. But to want to be like the other nations is going to be offensive to Samuel and offensive to God. It tells us in verse 3 then, but the, this thing displeased Samuel. That Hebrew phrase, displeased Samuel, displeased. Samuel thought this was evil. It was evil in Samuel's eyes. Literally, that's how it's translated. This was evil in the eyes of Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. First of all. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving others, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king. You shall reign over them. Now, I would like to do two things here. First of all, I would invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And I want to look at verse 14 and following. I posed this question last week, and now I want to pose it and answer it. In terms of God's sovereign will, was it his will that they have a king? The answer to that is yes. So the issue is not God's sovereign will, and I want to read Deuteronomy 17 in a minute, but it's one, the timing, and two, it's their motivation. I'll deal with both of those in a minute. But please go back to Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and following with me. 
Now, reminder, as you're turning, Deuteronomy is literally, Deuteronomy means the second law. Moses has led the people through the wilderness wanderings of 40 years. That's come to an end. They're on the west, east side of the Jordan River about to cross into the promised land. Moses will not go with them, you might remember, because of his previous sin in Numbers 20. So he writes the book of Deuteronomy, and he summarizes everything that you see in Leviticus and the book of Numbers, and adds some details. This is one of those. Look at verse 14. This is God speaking to Moses, Moses writing it down. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Does that sound familiar? That's virtually identical to what they had just asked. So God foresees that, but notice, you may indeed set a king over you. That's God's permissive will. He's not going to resist that. He's not going to deny that. He will permit that. But he he stipulates six key qualifications, six key stipulations, six key standards for the king. Standard number one, whom the Lord your God will choose. So who is to choose the king? The Lord is. And notice again that phrase, Lord your God, your translations have Lord in in uppercase letters and capital letters. That's Yahweh your Elohim. That's the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. So stipulation number one is God will choose him. Stipulation number two, one from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So stipulation number two is he must be a Jew. <laughs> he must be an Israelite. You're going to put a Moabite or a Philistine or a Babylonian over you as king. Number three, verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So stipulation number three is the king is not to acquire many horses. And where you would buy horses in in the 1400 B.C. is in Egypt. And he says, don't go back to Egypt, because I told you that. You were there once, do not go back. But that's interesting. Let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. Why would God make that a stipulation, acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to go down to Egypt to buy horses? Because they trust in themselves instead of God. Okay, it would have military implications. It would have a number of implications for the security of the nation. They are to trust in the Lord, as he will say in other places, not in horses, not in chariots, but in me. And so it's it's going to be interesting as we watch the kings, and we, we won't study that because that's not our purpose in First and Second Samuel, but if you study the reign of Solomon, what does Solomon do? He goes down to Egypt. And buys enormous numbers of horses and builds three chariot cities, Gezer, Megiddo, and Hatzor. They're all chariot cities he builds along the trade routes uh, on the east side, of, on the west side of, of Israel. Stipulation. Small note on that. Solomon, he was a uh, entrepreneur. He'd buy them from Egypt and then he'd sell them. 
sell them to the people around him, making money is important and exporting. <laughs> That's one of the things he did. But he also built significant chariot cities for defense. Yeah. Stipulation number four is in verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Do the kings obey that? No. <laughs> Again, if you start with Solomon, and you see Solomon, the very, the very first thing Solomon does is he marries the daughter of the pharaoh of Egypt and builds a palace for her. <laughs> and then he'll marry like Moabites. And, marry, and what, what you see is it does turn his heart. As a matter of fact, if you ever go to Israel and stand on Temple Mount, I would point to you the Mount of Abomination. That's what it's called. Because on that, that's where Solomon built all the temples to all the gods of his wives. So God is saying something here. The king is to lead the nation. And the king, leaders are always called to a higher standard. The king is to be the shepherd king, shepherd leader of his people. And then the third thing, or excuse me, the fifth thing is at the end of verse 17, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Does Solomon do that? Oh, my goodness. He was not only the wisest man who ever lived, the scriptures say, but he was one of the wealthiest in terms of that period, if not the wealthiest man. Then there is a fifth, or excuse me, a sixth standard. That's in verse 16 and following. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitic priests. And it shall be with him, and shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and his statutes and doing them. Here's the purpose for that, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So you see these six stipulations, six standards, if you will, for the king. So, question, was it God's will for Israel to have a king? Yes. But God sets the standards for that king. And he will say in other parts of the Old Testament, if the king does not lead the people and does not follow these stipulations, I will discipline him and discipline the nation. And, of course, that is indeed what happens. <clears throat> so when we're coming back now to, to our study in 1 Samuel 8, <clears throat> as God stated, they're going to ask for a king, and God is going to review, I'm going to give you a king, but there are six stipulations for that. God does not review that here in 1 Samuel 8. And I've often thought, as I was studying all this again on Monday, I thought again, I, did Samuel not know Daniel, uh, Deuteronomy 17? Of course he did. It's Torah. But for some, he doesn't, he doesn't bring that up. He doesn't mention that. He doesn't defer to that. But he's resisting what they are asking. He goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, let them have a king. But I want you to warn them. We saw that at the end of verse 9. I want you to warn them 
of the consequences of having a king. Now, remember something. I said that last week. I'm going to remind you again. Israel at this time, there is no centralized bureaucracy, no centralized worship system. There's no centralized capital city. It is a decentralized nation. Twelve tribes, each tribe having a a specific land grant. We read that near the end of the book of Joshua. And with that administrative framework of a highly decentralized country. If they get a king, what will happen? Everything is centralized. All the power and the authority goes from a decentralized framework, which is spread throughout the land grants of the 12 tribes, to a centralized kingdom under a single ruler. And that single ruler will do things they are not used to. And the one thing that you all delight in every April 15th is he's going to tax you. So what Samuel does, starting in verse 10, is he reviews exactly what God had said. He reviews the consequences of having a centralized form of government under a monarch. Regardless of what God stated in Deuteronomy 17, they have to understand this. Now, I just want to remind you again that the spiritual condition of the nation was was a serious and, and, and very sad spiritual situation. Basically, they are turning by asking with the motivation they're asking, they're turning their back on the Lord. They're rejecting his theocratic arrangement. As he said to Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're not criticizing you. They're criticizing me. And secondly, as we read under Samuel's sons, etc., we saw with Eli, the, the Levitical priesthood at this point in Israel's history is a catastrophe. These are self-serving, greedy immoral, corrupt spiritual leaders. And it's going to be one of the things you're going to see David will deal with that later on. They, they, were, not, they were not willing to, <clears throat> to wait and trust the Lord. They're trusting their own resources. And with that is an immense degree of jealousy among the tribes. Now, we saw some of that when we, I don't remember how long ago we did this, but when we studied the book of Judges, you saw the intense rivalry among the 12 tribes. They're jealous of each other, and they particularly, they're particularly jealous of Judah. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as we get further into the study of 1 Samuel. But they, they just don't get along. So resolving all this is going to be the job of the king. But there are consequences to allowing the king to resolve all this. That's part of what Samuel is going to do. One other point to drive home, and I, th- I think you're, you're, you're aware of this. We sort of talked about it last, last week. When they say, as, as we read in verse 5, like all the nations, I remind you again, they are not like all the nations. But when they say that, what do they really mean by that? We want a king 
just like all the nations. Okay, they do not want the Lord to rule over them. But can, I mean, I'm trying to get you to think a little broadly here. I mean, what's what's in their mind? These are the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, presumably some of the spiritual leaders. This isn't every single person in Israel. They don't have that kind of an ability to to find out what everybody thinks or believes. But what what's what's really in back of all this? What do they mean by that? Like all the nations, do they want to be recognized? Okay, on a worldly view as another country group of people just the same and, as anybody else and to look at their neighbors what did they see all their neighbors having a very strong king greatness is identified with political power greatness is identified with the the pomp and circumstance that go with a ruler that identifies that, that creates your identity as a nation they don't have an identity. They do. I mean, they're God's people. They're God's covenant people. That's not how they're looking at it. Well, we're not like the Moabites. We're not like the, the Ammonites. We're not like the, the Assyrians over across the, the desert in the Mesopotamian Valley. We're not like the Hittites up north. We don't want to be like them. Their greatness is identified with their king, who manifest tremendous power and conquers that's what we want we want the glory that goes with what we see around all our neighbors we're nothing we're a de decentralized bunch of tribes that don't get along let's make something of ourselves greatness is associated with the wielding of power and only a king can do that. Samuel's job is to bring them back to reality. Because you know, and I know, at least I think you would agree, power is not the answer to everything. Power can be very, very corrupting. And that's one of the dangers of it. The brilliance of our founders, separating power, dividing power, where there's checks and balances and all that stuff. So Samuel, in verse 10, goes through a litany of warnings. You want a king? This is what's going to change. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Presumably, he just reviewed what God said in the previous couple of verses. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now, I read from the ESV translation. I don't know if all of your translations have that. These will be the ways. That little term they translate ways is mishpat. These will be the decisions. This, these will characterize the rule. This will be the system of justice of the king who will rule over you. I'm going to itemize these. There are eight of them. Number one, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariot. 
when he uses the verb take, you and I would use the word draft or conscript. Will they have a choice? No. I mean, you could put it very strongly. He will force your sons, appoint them to his chariots, his horsemen, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Kings are like that. Kings like the pomp and circumstance, the chariots that go with the pomp and circumstance, as well as the chariots that go with war. But when he says to run before his chariots, that's part of the pomp and circumstance of rule. He's going to enter the areas that he rules on the chariot, and you're going to have your sons running before him to be a herald. The king is coming. Be ready. Secondly, verse 12, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will have the authority to conscript forced labor. It isn't slavery, but he will conscript your kids into a highly organized bureaucracy. Commander of the thousands, commander of the fifties. And what will they do as he organizes these bureaucratic agencies? Some are going to plow his ground. You're going to care for his estate. Your kids are going to care for his estate. They're not going to be home plowing your ground. They're going to be plowing his estate. They're, they're going to be reaping his harvest in the fall. They're going to be running the combines, not yours, his. They're going to get the beans, not yours, his. I'm getting excited. You understand what I mean? And to make his influence of war. He's going to draft your sons into his labor gangs to make his war material. The equipment for his chariots. They're going to build his chariots. They're going to build his implements of war. And he's going to draft them into that responsibility. Number three, he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Part of his, part of his duties as king is he'll have a palace and he'll have servants. And he's going to have people prepare his meals. He's going to, be, he's going to have people who prepare all of the, the ointments and perfumes that hid the body odor in the ancient world. That's where perfume started for that purpose, to hide body odor. They didn't shower every day. They showered, they, they bathed maybe once a fortnight. Fortnight is two weeks. In some areas, once a month. In some areas, once a year, depending where you live. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? And so that's why these ointments, the ointments that would, would soothe the dry skin, because this is a semi-arid, semi-arid climate. Much of it, not all of it, much of it. So the dryness of the skin, ointments are developed. He's, he's going to take your daughters. He's going to conscript your daughters. I'm going to do all this for him. His bureaucracy is going to involve a significant number of people who work for him and his leader, his house. Number four, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He's going to take your land. He's going to take your vineyards and give it to his bureaucrats. That's going to be their reward for serving in his government, but he's going to take your land and your vineyards and give it to them. Number five, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. How's he going to pay them? By taxing you. And the tax rate is going to be 10%. Now, you you know, of all the things that Samuel has gone over, that maybe was perhaps the most shocking because up to that point, nobody was taking 10% of their produce. The expectation you have a king, his tax rate and 10% in the ancient world, pretty high. And that's just to start, by the way, a lot more will be added. Number six, verse 16. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. So in addition to caring for all this, he is going to create, this is, this you're going to see really with, Sam, with Solomon, but also with David and some of the other kings. Who's going to build all of his buildings? Who's going to build all of his palaces? Who's going to build... Solomon will do this, David will do it, Solomon will do it. Who's going to build all the forts along the border to guard the border of the country? Who's going to build the chariot cities? Slave labor. He's going to conscript your children into doing that. And that's going to be one of the things by the time Solomon's reign is near the end, and his son Rehoboam is going to be the king, the people of Israel, the tribal and clan leaders, go to Rehoboam and say, your dad was really hard on us. He's conscripting all our kids into his workforce, and we don't even have enough to do the things we want. Will you please cut that in half? You know what Rehoboam does? I'm going to double it. So, I mean, this is in, in the things, we can complain about things today with taxes and all that stuff, but you read some of this stuff, oh, my goodness. They're going from a fairly significant degree of freedom and liberty among the decentralized tribes to a highly centralized government, if kind of use the words we would use today, where the king is going to have an enormous amount of power over your individual. You know, we would put it this way. You get a king, you're going to lose a lot of freedom. You're going to lose a lot of liberties. And all of the things that you enjoyed where nobody was, nobody was taking your kids and could script them into the army of the workforce. That's going to change. Nobody was taking a tenth of everything you produce. That's going to change. And number seven, in verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, eight, verse 18, this is the final point he's making. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That had to be really encouraging. <laughs> and it's just a, it's a realization of the seriousness of what really is going to happen when you have a go from a decentralized way of living to a highly centralized 
way of living under a king. And so the people say, okay, Samuel, sorry. We take it back. We don't want a king. Look at verse 19. But the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. We want a king to rule over us. <clears throat> Three things are going to change. We already talked about this, but I want to review the first one we've already talked about. A new relationship with Yahweh. A new relationship with the Lord. It's no longer going to be Yahweh the Lord God, the Levitical priest, the people. It's going to be Yahweh the Lord God, the king, the Levitical priest, the people. And this king is going to have tremendous power and authority over your life. Number two, as we've already said, you're going to lose a lot of freedom with the centralization of power. And number three, I haven't talked about this, but this is one of the consequences of this. The king is going to create, let's use a phrase we kind of use today, a meritorious elite class. We call them bureaucrats who are going to do and administer all that the king wants done. Because the king can't do all this, so he hires lots of and rewarding them largely because of loyalty and all that stuff. But he's going to have a whole, again, we, we would call it today a bureaucracy, a, a level of elite, meritorious bureaucrats who will serve him and implement all that Sam has just been talking about. This is a critical, fundamental change in the life of the individual Israelite. Their lives are never going to be the same because of the choice that they've made in wanting a king. <clears throat> okay? So if Adam was the first original sin, can we call this the second original sin? <laughs> suffering under? In, in a in a way in a way it is you know because it it because of their attitude and what we see in verse verse five they are fundamentally manifesting a distrust and a disloyalty to God. Yeah, yeah. So things that things are going to be totally different from here on out in the history of Israel. Now, I want to do one more thing and kind of go to like the 100,000 foot view that scripture gives us here about all this. If God's ultimate sovereign purpose was for Israel to have a king, and we will talk as we get into 2 Samuel, which is a long way down the road, David was, David was the ideal in many ways. Every king in Judah would be measured against David. Because David was a shepherd king. He shepherded the people. He served, he ruled, he did the things that we've briefly studied. But for God to want Israel to have a king, that's also prophetic, isn't it? Do you understand what I mean by prophetic? Because who will be the ultimate ideal king to shepherd his people? What's the answer? Jesus. 
Jesus is one of his titles. In, in Greek, it's Christ. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. He's the anointed one of God. He's the son of God who will rule as a shepherd. And when he sets up his rule and he returns the second time, the Bible describes that rule as a rule of perfect justice, perfect righteousness, and perfect peace. It won't be confiscatory. It won't be arbitrary. It won't be self-serving. He will rule perfectly. Is it going to be a democracy? No. Is it going to be a republic with a representative Congress? No. But the Bible says we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. That's a promise. It's part of being a joint heir. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3 and 4 and Romans 8 and so on. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, when they were suing one another, taking one another to court, knock it off. Don't you know that in the coming kingdom, you're going to rule and reign with Christ, including having administrative authority over angels? If God has that responsibility for you in the future, start acting like that now. So God's perfect design was to have a king ruling over a kingdom, and only Jesus will do that perfectly. And that's one of the things we learn as we study the monarchy of Israel. They need a shepherd king. And even David, a man after God's own heart, who did so many things well, so many things right in God's heart, he still, and that's what chapter 11 and chapter 12 of this book, first Samuel is all about, uh, or second Samuel is all about. The tragedy of David's life, he still sinned, and the nation paid a dear price for that. So this is all ultimately pointing to the need for Jesus. No matter what humanity does, no matter what humanity chooses in terms of everything, we keep coming up short. We keep missing the point. We keep missing the mark because of our problem. And that problem is, of course, sin. Jesus will be the perfect, righteous, just, benevolent dictator. Bet you didn't think I was going to use that word, <clears throat> dictator. But, I mean, that's really, he really will be. You read about that description of Jesus as, his, as our ruler, especially in the book of, of, of Isaiah in chapter 9. Wonderful counselor. Remember that? We sing that at Christmas in Handel's Messiah. Rob? I had to sing Chariots and Fire, and as Eric Little was coming out of the church after um, making the kids play in soccer on Sunday Field, not too bad, though. Um, quoting, uh, suggesting that, that God is benevolent. It's a wonderful scene. Yeah, yeah. That's a great movie, too. I love that movie. Ah, uh, okay. Are you, you know, Rob, just validate what I said from a movie, Chariots of Fire. But is, do you agree that that is a biblical way to think about Jesus ruining a benevolent dictator? 
I mean, that's uncomfortable for us in a country where democracy and democratic republic of home government. <coughs> but that's not going to be the government of the kingdom. And so what, what I think, one of the things we can draw from God, God demonstrates to us, no matter what form of government, no matter what structure of government, you will never have the righteousness and justice and peace that will characterize the coming kingdom of Jesus. That's why the future promises of God should affect present behavior. That's our hope. So we live in a fallen, broken world where things are not always going to work well in terms of ideal. It can work better. We can always make things better. But the perfection of all of this waits for Christ. And Israel is beginning, and this is what fundamentally changes now the history of Israel. Israel is beginning to be ruled by a king. How is that going to go for them? And that's what the rest of, if we get into the uh, Saul being the king and then David and Solomon, and we will get into that, but first and second kings, all the other kings, until the northern kings destroyed by Syria and the southern kings destroyed by Babylon. We're still waiting for the king. He's coming, okay? Everybody online okay? Any questions? Yeah, we're good. Yep, right. we're checking. Amen. Okay, let's look here again. It's uh, we have about twenty minutes. But people refused to obey the voice, and they said, "No, but there shall be a king over us." Now, notice these pronouns that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. As I mentioned earlier, it would be the tribal and clan leaders and perhaps the spiritual leaders, Levites and Levitical cities. They gathered. Now he disperses them. Go back. Go back home. Now, the scripture here, as we uh, go into chapter 9, focuses on Saul who will be the first king. Verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. What tribe is Benjamin? I just told you. What tribe is Saul from? The tribe of Benjamin. What does the Bible say about Jesus? Is Jesus of the tribe of Benjamin? What tribe is he from? He's from the tribe of Judah. What tribe is David from? The tribe of Judah. So that's really interesting because in, you go back to Genesis 19, and Jacob is about to die. He calls all his, his boys together, and he blesses each one of them. And when he gets to Judah, he says, the scepter shall never depart from you. The kings are going to come from you, Judah. So it's just interesting that the focus immediately in verse 9 is not on Judah's tribe, but on Benjamin. Benjamin's a tiny little sliver. I don't have a map of this, but you can look at lots of these. But here's, here's roughly the land grant of Judah, pretty large land grant, very southern part bordering the Negev Desert. And right to the north 
of Judah is a little sliver. It's Benjamin. Not a very large tribe. Its land grant isn't very large. As a matter of fact, the only thing that's really important about Benjamin's land grant is that's where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is in the land grant of Benjamin. But we don't know any of that right now. It's just the introduction is immediately. There was a tribe man of Benjamin. His name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorah, son of Mephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. So the author just traced the lineage going back a number of generations. Verse 2, and he had a son. Who's the he? Kish. Had a son. His name was Saul. How does the Bible describe Saul? Handsome. Young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. So immediately you read verses like that, which, you know, broad but fairly accurate descriptions, immediately think, ooh, this guy stands out. And when the text says he's handsome and he's young, taller than any other Israelite, you're immediately thinking, hey, that sounds like a good king. We want our king to be handsome. We want him to look like Charles. <coughs> Nobody's laughing. No, aren't you with me? Are you awake? Charles III, the new king of England. He was crowned a while back. You know, all these stuff that happened to him. I mean, he's a good-looking guy. He's old. He's my age. But he's the king. Well, Saul is young. He's handsome and he's tall. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Now, probably most of you, well, if my donkeys are lost, I don't care. I don't think much of donkeys. But donkeys were really important in the ancient world. Well, that, yeah, I mean, they're real, they're real important because horses, number one, horses are very rare in Israel. We read a little bit about that earlier and were very expensive, whereas donkeys weren't. Donkeys, donkeys were a means of travel. You rode the king. This is interesting. The sons of the king always rode donkeys. When you read about Absalom, the son of David, Absalom's always riding a donkey. When he is, gets tangled, this goes way ahead of our study, he's riding a donkey. So, Donkeys are really important, and they were work animals. So if, he, if, his, if his donkeys are lost, that is a very serious issue. It's financial. Everything about his estate, his work, is, is hanging about. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men, that phrase in Hebrew, young men, the, the first among all the servants, the, the lead servant, the top guy of all our servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he, he would be Saul, passed through the hill country of Ephraim. Remember, here, here's Benjamin, this tiny little land grant. That's where they live. He's to go north. into Ephraim is that large land grant. Samuel's from there. We, we saw that in some of the map you, that, that you saw in your packet. They passed through the land of Shalishka, but they did not find him. They passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So all through Ephraim land, came back to Benjamin, no donkeys. When they came to the land of Zuf, now Zuf is the name of a clan leader. 
on the west side of the land grant of Ephraim. That's where Samuel lives. To the land of Zuth, one of the clan leaders, that's where Samuel lives. Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. We've been gone for a long time. My dad's going to be worried about us. They didn't have cell phones. They have computers. Dad's going to be worried about me. So there's a little bit of sensitivity there in Saul. It's good to see that. But he, the servant, said to him, Saul, behold, there is a man of God in this city. He is a man who is held in honor. Now, those two phrases, man of God and honor, are essential words in the Old Testament of spiritual leaders, of sages, of wise men. So when the text says in verse 5, they're in the land of Zuth, I told you, that's a clan leader on the west end of the Ephraim land grant. That's where Samuel lives. So this servant is talking about Samuel. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread of our sacks is gone. There's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? This was part of the hospitality and, and customs of the ancient Near Eastern world. You go to visit a sage or a wise person, you take a gift. We don't have anything to give him. So that's not extraordinary. This is a normal question. The servant answered in verse 8. The servant answered, so again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. It, it's almost impossible to try to get a modern equivalent of that. A shekel is about two-fifths of an ounce. So it's not a lot of silver. And I will give it to the man of God to tell on our way. Man of God, honor man of God again. We're going to learn this is Samuel. Fortunately in Israel, when a man went to a choir of God, he said, come let us go, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Saul said to his servant, well, said, come let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. The city is Ramah, R-A-M-A-H. We've learned that earlier. This is the city of Samuel. They met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Remember that it was one of the names of the prophet. Is the seer, seer is wise man. Is a wise man in the city? They answered, he is. Behold, he's just ahead. Hurry. He is coming out just to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. After those who are invited, we now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they're entering, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now, perhaps you're a little confused there. This high place, before the temple was built, before everything is centralized, there were legitimate places where people worshiped God, where they went to Shiloh for the annual sacrifices, that kind of thing. This is apparently what's just going on. And Samuel was there to bless that, and he would enjoy a meal together. So this is a community time of worship, 
a community time, a fellowship, and they would eat a meal together. That's what Samuel is doing. Now, in verse, uh, verse 15, let me try to get through this if we can. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That is a very important sentence. God's purpose for Saul is singular. He's going to rescue people, the people of Israel, from the strong hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. That is a very interesting translation. I Again, I told you before, I reach in the ESV translation. I don't know what all your translations say there. Okay. Anything different? Govern. Govern, okay. It's interesting that ESV has chosen to translate that restrain In what way does a governor or a ruler restrain? Okay. I mean it's 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 a correct translation of that verb, it really is. It's easier to translate a governor or ruler, it really is, or reign over. But literally restrain. Government's responsibility, according to the Bible, is to promote justice and thwart evil. And to do that, it has power, it deals with unjust acts, it builds prisons, it executes people for capital crimes. All of that is restraining. The king is God's vice regent. The king now serves under God in this new theocratic arrangement. And the responsibility of the king is to restrain the evil of the people, restrain their activities, Bind and frame them to create the kind of stability that government's supposed to do. And it's just fascinating that, that, that God says this to Samuel, to restrain the people. Then Samuel, Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Well, by the way, Saul, verse 20, as for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind to them. They've been found. That's really interesting. That's a little interesting tidbit, kind of a sidebar but Samuel said, I know what's on your mind. Finding the donkeys. It's all been taken care of. They're back home with your dad. I want you to focus on something much more important. So that 
that gathering of the town in the high place for worship and sacrifice and, and join the meal. So I want you to enjoy that with us. Tomorrow we'll deal with all this. And for whom it is all desirableness for, is it not for you and all your father's house? So I answered, am I not, I'm in verse 21, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel, and my clan, the humblest, all the clans of the tribe of Israel. Why have you spoken to me in this way? <clears throat> Saul cannot wrap his mind around what in the world Samuel's saying to him. What are you talking about? I go back to that verse. The donkeys have been found, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? There's something really significant I want to tell you tomorrow. So, significant information that's going to affect all of Israel. And Saul's aghast at this language. What are you talking about? Me? I come from the smallest and most insignificant of the tribes, and that's true. I, you know, without a map, I, the land grant of Benjamin was very, very small. Benjamin, in terms of population, was the smallest. And he even says, our clan, the clan I come from within Benjamin, who are you talking about? What are you talking about? Verse 22. And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. This meal that they're enjoying as a community, Saul's like the honored guest. He's at the head of the table. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, which I said to you, put it aside. The cook took up the leg from Leviticus chapter 7, Verse 32 and 33, this was the portion of honor. Now God had told Samuel what to expect the next day. Saul shows up. Samuel's been informed by God. He's already prepared, and he's even ordered the cook who prepared this special meal, give the portion of the animal of honor to Saul, to this guest. Was set on and it was on it, and it was set before Saul. Samuel said, "See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests." So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep, presumably in Samuel's house. That seems reasonable. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called Saul on the roof up. And I might send you on your way. So Saul rose, and he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. When he passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. As I was reviewing this on Monday, I was thinking, what's on Saul's mind here? I imagine to some extent he's trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. You know, all of this pomp and circumstance, I get the 
I get the, the thickest filet mignon possible for dinner last night. I've been able to sleep in the in the the roof where the breezes come in off the Mediterranean. It was lovely and cool. I'm being treated. I sat at the at the seat of honor in that fellowship meal last night. What's going on here? He's mentioning about all of Israel being blessed. <laughs> And then Samuel takes him outside the gate of Ram, and they're walking, presumably in kind of a, a southeasterly direction because that's what Saul would have to do to go back home. And Samuel says, tell that servant who's head of your father's servants to go way ahead of us. Just going to be you. It's going to be I. And I'm going to tell you the word of the Lord for you. I'm going to tell you God's will for you. If you want to find out what that is, you got to come back next week. It's what chapter 9 is all about. What do we see about Saul? A reluctance to some degree, a sensitivity. He was worried about his dad, worrying about him. He's been gone three days now. He's been gone three days searching for the donkeys. He, he's trying to wrap his mind around the implications of everything Samuel's saying, and he can't figure it out. That's understandable. So what we see from chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, is a guy who seems to be teachable. He's tall. He's young. He's handsome. He has a degree of sensitivity. He's concerned about his dad. That's good. There's a, there doesn't seem to be audacity and pride. There seems to be a degree of humility. And so you finish chapter 9, you think, oh, good first start. And that, that humility extends to me? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And my clan is the most significant in the tribe. He's certainly not interested in self-elevation. But we're going to have to ask this question about Saul. Despite all of these positive aspects, where was his character flaw? What is it that will do Saul in? And that's what we're going to be talking about. So next week, we'll get the answer. What was the word of the Lord, as Samuel put it? What was the word of God for Saul? We'll learn that next week. We're going to start to see how Saul steps into this role. Seems like the right guy. Seems like a good guy. Okay? I want to pray for Glenn. He's doing well. He's with us online, and that's so good. But he still is in some therapy, but the Lord's been good to him. Pretty serious last week at this time. Father, I want to thank you for the study of Samuel and Saul. Lord, I thank you, too, for the clarity. As the people of Israel back about oh, 1100 B.C. or so ask for a king, indeed demand a king of Samuel, Reluctantly, he follows your will. And we answered that question, was it your will for Israel to have a king? Yeah, it was. Deuteronomy 17 lays out stipulations for a king. But we're going to see how every king comes up short. Lord, this is a fallen, broken world. No one is ever going to attain perfection. That doesn't mean we work for, do not work for justice and righteousness. But, Lord, we wait for the return of Jesus. 
the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to set up his kingdom and rule a perfect kingdom of perfect righteousness, justice, and peace. We long for that. We wait for that with great expectancy. That's a promise you made to come back. As Lord, as we're studying these kings, and the first one was Saul, and then we're going to look at David. We're looking at men who are fallible, men who make mistakes, men who are finite, but chosen by you to lead, but to also teach. We want to learn those lessons, and we trust this to you. Be with these men. May we leave this room with your blessing, and may we represent you well. In your son's name we pray. See you next week.